I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I've known Mike Flynn for years, and I've watched the amazing work and the amazing courage he's shown. He is a great American patriot, devoted to his country, his family, and his wife of 39 years. Born in Middletown, Rhode Island in 1958, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn served 33 years in the United States Army. In 2017, he was appointed as National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, and he was subsequently embroiled in Russiagate until his pardon by President Trump on November 25th, 2020. He is here to share his story with us in two episodes. In his first episode, he'll talk about his military career. Then on Wednesday, We'll talk about Russiagate. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. To my listeners, the beginning of my interview with General Flynn had a poor microphone connection, which we corrected halfway through the interview. When I considered asking Mike to share his story with us, I realized that the depth of his professionalism, the lifetime of patriotism, the degree to which he had risen from genuine poverty as a child in a large family to serve his country, to risk his life, to accept traveling back and forth to all parts of the world, that you really to understand the Russiagate and how totally immoral and disgusting it is. You need to understand the person 
that the deep state decided to target. And so I wanted to share both his personal story up through his direct service to the country until he became national security advisor. And that's what we're going to do today. And then when you understand fully what an extraordinary patriot this is, I think you'll better understand on Wednesday when he talks about Russiagate, how really disgusting, immoral, and unpatriotic the FBI and the deep state was in targeting him. And so this is, I think, a very important lesson in the challenges of America, where even a lifetime of patriotism can be smeared by the left. And in that context, I hope you find it really useful, both to get to know Mike Flynn, the general, and then to hear him talk in the next episode about Mike Flynn fighting for his life against the entire deep state. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. I want to go back to the beginning. My dad served 27 years in the infantry, so I have deep affection for the U.S. Army and for people who make it their career. Newt, thank you very much for having me on and for allowing me this opportunity. So if you would, General Flynn, let's start with the 33 years service you gave to the United States and the U.S. Army. How did that all happen? You're at the University of Rhode Island and and the ROTC, but why did you do that and what was your experience of that? I have a long, long history in my family of service in the armed forces. Both my grandfathers served in World War One. I have a grandfather that served in both World War One and World War Two. And my father was a retired master sergeant from the Army, and he served in World War II in Korea. So I have a long, long history, at least over the last you know, 120 years, from when my family came over from Ireland in the late 1800s. I have myself and two other brothers who served in the military. I still have a brother who continues to serve in the military, and I have a whole bunch of uncles and nephews and nieces who continue to serve in the military. You did a review of everybody in my immediate circle. We have long service in the armed forces, and that's been something that particularly my father and my grandfathers taught us to serve, that service was the first and foremost thing that you were going to do. I always felt like I wanted to go into the military. I felt like that was the direction that I wanted to go. You'd think the University of Rhode Island, if you know anything about Rhode Island, you'd think that I would have gone into the Navy, but I did not. In my freshman year in college, I actually considered enlisting in the Marine Corps. And I went through a process to do that and got really, really lucky through a variety of things with an Army major in the ROTC department, which I was taking a class at the time as a freshman in college and thinking I was going to go into the Marine Corps that summer, you know, in some sort of delayed entry. He came to me during the middle of the summer and said, hey, we've had some scholarships turned back. We'd like to offer you one if you would come back into school and focus on that. So my father sat me down that night and he said, this is a great opportunity. I really strongly recommend that you do that. So I did it and took a three-year Army ROTC scholarship from the University of Rhode Island. Like they say, the rest is history. But I will tell you, Newt, that my very first assignment after going through ranger training and intelligence training, my first bevy into the military was really in the world of electronic warfare, which was relatively new at the time. And it was emerging because of new ideas and technology. But my first assignment was in the 82nd Airborne Division. And I think that 
having had that privilege and that honor to serve in the 82nd Airborne Division as a young officer, it really gave me a foundational idea about the kind of things that I wanted to do to continue to serve. I'm not sure if I had gone into another assignment or another place that I would have stayed. I can't sit here and say that I would have, but having gone into the 82nd early on. So that's at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I ended up serving at Fort Bragg, North Carolina over half of my career. I served there almost 17 years at Fort Bragg. I actually served at Fort Bragg as a second lieutenant all the way to Brigadier General. And you know Fort Bragg. Newt, Fort Bragg is the home of the Airborne and Special Operations Forces. We always said if there was an emergency and the president was going to break glass and dial 911, that phone would ring at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because it's a home of readiness and rapid deployment. And that was my initial entry into the world of the Army as a young officer. And I met some of the finest soldiers, many of whom I am still very, very close friends with, my squad leaders. In fact, I had one of my squad leaders send me a picture the other day of a photograph that we took. He was a squad leader in my platoon, and we were down in Honduras in the early 80s, 1983, in an operation called Awas Tara. I tell you that because the relationships that I developed there led me, particularly with the non-commissioned officers, my platoon sergeants, Jerry Zamora, Ernie Sanchez, Raul Colon. I mean, these were some really, really tough guys. Many of them had served in Vietnam, but they were professionals. So that was a foundation assignment, Newt. It was a springboard for me to understand what I wanted to do in the military. I wanted to be around units, organizations, and people like that that had the same desire to serve this country and basically do what you believe the military should actually do. So from there, I had a series of assignments. I went back and forth into training environments where I was an instructor for a long time, for a couple of years. I went out to the 25th Infantry Division for an assignment. The other thing that I was taught, and really by a battalion commander, Tom O'Connell, a terrific guy, he was a original intelligence officer for the Delta Force when they first stood up almost 30 years ago now. He taught me two things, really. And I think that those two things came also in the values that I learned as a child, you know, the ability to, you know, sort of treat others like you want to be treated and to continue to get your education. And that was something that he taught me as a battalion commander because he saw something in me. He actually became my mentor throughout my long career. I have always stayed in touch with him. And one of the things he taught me was about relationships with, particularly with the non-commissioned officer corps, because that's the heartbeat, that's the soul. And that's either our non-commissioned officer corps in the army or our chiefs in the Navy, our gunny sergeants in the Marine Corps, our tech sergeants in the Air Force. That's what makes our military different. I think that my father was a master sergeant and retired and was a tough guy who fought in World War II and Korea. My father spent almost over two years in Korea. I really learned that those relationships mattered more than really other relationships that I needed to make. Although you work with other great officers, I mean, I could name 10 officers who I served as the senior intelligence officer for in their own way. So Fort Bragg was a really big, big opportunity for me. If I understand correctly, Part of that initial experience at Bragg was being deployed as a platoon leader to Grenada. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very, very early in your career. I think it was Urgent Fury was the name of the operation during the early days of the Reagan era, where Reagan basically was saying, we're going to defeat communism wherever it rears its ugly head. As a platoon leader, I deployed my platoon down to Grenada 
and served there for you know a few months based on the operations that were there and had a great learning experience for me to watch really the fledgling beginnings in the sort of early days of my career of joint operations, combined operations, working with other forces, working with other services. You know, at the higher level, people will say what it is, but at the lower level, I think people really got stuff done, right? Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada, I think that was 1983. And I also served in, like I mentioned, in Honduras for a little bit. And the operation was called Awastara, stands for Pine Tree. And that was in the early days of targeting or going after the Nicaraguan, the Sandinistan government, again, fighting communism as it was emerging in Central and South America. So my early formation of how I viewed things was really through that lens. That strengthened and got me really to be more thoughtful as I studied what we were facing in this country, why I ended up going the direction that I went. And in various educational experiences that the military affords you, I really focused on combining my tactical operational experiences with becoming a strategic thinker. And I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't captured by the tactical in lieu of understanding the strategic. And the strategic is more than just military operations and military strategy. It's actually how the military fits into a wider geostrategic strategy. And I would say in further operational assignments over my full career, working in combat zones, working in combatant commands, working in special operations commands, working in corps and joint task forces, all the way up to where I ended up at the pinnacle really was when I was assigned as the senior military intelligence officer in the Department of Defense. And then, of course, as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, one of the largest intel agencies in the world, certainly one of the big ones in our country. So I really was trying to develop myself because that's what they teach you in the military. You know, it's self-development and, and leader development. I think that I was really given the honor and the privilege to get to that level because I was capable of being able to combine the tactical, the operational and the strategic and then the geostrategic. This is Gianno Caldwell. This week on Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell, I interview someone who has been in the headlines a ton recently. I'm talking about Daniel Cameron, the Attorney General of Kentucky. He's the man at the center of the Breonna Taylor case and is now at the center of a legal fight to allow kids to attend religious schools in person. We dig into these issues and the tsunami of backlash that Cameron has received. Listen to Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell every Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Are there any particular moments or any sort of vignettes or personal stories that kind of illustrate what you were going through and kind of when you had an aha moment? I came out of Fort Leavenworth Command and General Staff College, and I had been selected to stay there a second year in the School of Advanced Military Studies, which is essentially an additional year of training because you get chosen. It's competitive. I was assigned from there, and I believe that was summer of 1994, if I have that right, back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I worked for Hugh Shelton, who was the Corps commander. And at the time, the operations officer for the Corps was a guy named Dan McNeil. Dan was a colonel at the time, and Dan retired as a four-star as well. And those are two officers that really did have an impact on me. They were tough guys. They were terrific leaders. And I went to work for them that summer. Most people take, you know, 30 days before you go to your next assignment. I was called up the day before graduation and told, get here as soon as you can. When I showed up, the 18th Airborne Corps and 82nd Airborne Division was deeply involved in a planning effort to invade Haiti at the time for the operations that when we went into Haiti in the fall of 1994. And at the same time, the Kosovo, Bosnia, Herzegovina, all of that was building up and forces were being placed over there. So I was an operational planner and I was a solid intelligence officer at the time. And so what Dan McNeil did, instead of putting me over in the intelligence section and working for the G2, Dan took me in and made me the chief of war plans for the G3, for the operational side. I stayed there for a year and one developed some terrific relationships, but also we got into immediately long-term planning for not only Haiti all through that summer, but also operations in and around the Balkans. And then, of course, there was the pre-invasion work and then the invasion that was planned for Haiti. And we were deeply involved in that. When all that stopped, the forces were brought back on aircraft to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because of the deal that was cut by Jimmy Carter. General Shelton at the time said, "Okay, we're going to move the core headquarters as a joint task force down to Haiti. And 
what we already discussed about Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada, well, Shelton and McNeil were in their own way involved in that event. They really wanted to make sure that we didn't make some of the same mistakes going down there. I was sort of part of the inner circle there, working directly for Hugh Shelton and Dan McNeil and other great leaders at the time. We were on the Mount Whitney and we were parked in Port-au-Prince Harbor and we got down there. The elements of the 10th Mountain Division were on the ground. And that really, in terms of a personal story that impacted my career, it was those two officers who I watched and observed and took great lessons from, but also how we operated in a complex, difficult, and in this case, a difficult place too, because Haiti's not an easy place to operate in and operating with full coalition in a sense, but certainly a joint task force operation. That taught me a lot. Well, I'm curious, what was your personal reaction to the realities of Haiti? I mean, as you said, it's very difficult, very complex place with a very tragic history. When you first got there and you're out there looking around, what's your reaction to that? In 1914, my grandfather was on the USS Baltimore and He was deployed into Haiti, 1914. And I kept this photo with me because I have a photo of my grandfather sitting on the beach with a couple of other sailors. He was a seaman at the time, sitting on the beach, and they were standing there with Haitians because they had just gone ashore. The other aspect of my life and my family, the guy who married my wife and I, his name is Philip Andrews. Well, Philip is my cousin. Philip was actually a priest, and he's a priest working in the Dominican Republic. He spent 25, 30 years there at the time. This was years ago. He was over there, you know, building houses and stuff. So I had that personal relationship with somebody who I deeply knew who was on the other side of the island, if you will. When I looked at Haiti for the first time with overhead satellite imagery, when we were studying it, you could tell the stark difference between this beautiful, lush Dominican Republic side, and that has a history of why they're like that, and then this stripped, eroded half of the island and very incredibly poor people that are on that island that have nothing. And I would say that even today, they really have been devastated as a people. But at the time, as a relatively young officer, I was a major, that when I saw that, and then I physically went there and observed it and witnessed some of the things that I saw, like these creeks that people were bathing out of, washing their clothes in, and animals were in, and I had seen other things in Central America in my deployments there to Honduras and to Panama, but the starkness of what Haiti was, it shows you how far humanity will go to survive. And so that experience as a major taught me a lot. Mike, how how do you compare, because you've served both places, how do you compare the bleakness and poverty of Haiti with Afghanistan? Well, two obviously entirely different physical environments. I would say because of where the Haitians are at geographically, they have access to more things, but they're abused. The Haitian government and the Haitian people, I think, are abused by the various societies that have taken advantage of them for various reasons. Narcotics, as an example, narcotics flow. But saying that, jump into the geographical environment and the people and the culture of Afghanistan, I would say that there's a resiliency in the people of Afghanistan that's even greater than the resiliency that I observed in Haiti and actually elsewhere around the world. 
There's a resiliency in the people of Afghanistan that I have observed, I lived with for the better part of almost five years. I can't say that I understand it. I observe it. I try to be compassionate and understand the cultures that I operate within. I got a chance to know many, many Afghans, and I walked around in a lot of villages, and they have a resilience that is just unimaginable, I think, to people in this country. We just can't imagine what, how they are able to live and survive, in some cases, in a very barren environment, in other cases, in an environment that is filled with resources, yet not developed. And because they're so isolated geographically, there's no ocean that they butt up against. That means everything has to come to them or they have to go get stuff. But the resiliency is vastly different than the resiliency that I saw in the human spirit in Afghanistan than Haiti. I mean, you end up in almost every place that we have a real conflict. You're in Iraq with the Joint Special Operations Command, and you really create the first big integrated use of modern data to go after the opponents. Can you talk just briefly about how you're integrating drones and cell phones and computers and right. an amazing array of information flow. Right. When I was tapped to go be the senior intelligence officer for Joint Special Operations Command out of Fort Bragg, it was in summer of 2004. I knew I was going to be going there. In fact, I did a sort of a recon for about 10 days with the command in April 2004. You know, the Abu Ghraib situation was unraveling and, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. It was a mess, Snoop. It was a mess. So when I returned after my recon July of 2004, I then did another assessment in multiple locations that the command was in. And one of the things that I learned, the coordination of intelligence between camps, between our own internal tribes that were joint, that there was in Afghanistan, there was other nations involved, was really lacking. And it wasn't a function of the poor leadership or anything like that. It was just complex. And we're talking about an enemy that wasn't just in Iraq. They were a very network, very virtual enemy. And so I took some of my own sort of background and training. But one of the other moments I went into, I walked into a detainee compound where bags and bags of computers and paper and photos and passports and thumb drives and all the kinds of things that you can imagine. And I said to a young analyst who was working there, I said, what's all that? And she said, because there was another pile of it on the ground. She said, well, all the operators, when they go do a raid, they bring all this stuff back and they dump it here. I was like, okay, we definitely got to fix this. When I witnessed that and I started to fix that problem, we were doing about six raids a month to capture or kill high value targets, right? High value Al-Qaeda targets, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We were doing about six raids a month. In the next corresponding two years, by June of 2006, we were upwards of 30 raids a night. For anybody that understands warfare at that level with special operations who need what I call bulletproof intelligence, and a machine to back that up, to get them on the target, so to speak. And I got the right people around me, who I still say today are still some of the best friends that I have, and we're still helping the country in different ways. But we created a system to move intelligence from the battlefield, literally the tactical battlefield right there at the raid site, to an operational level, 
and back to Washington, D.C., and then back onto the battlefield in real time. And I mean, like when people in Washington, D.C. or the intel community in D.C. talk about real time intelligence, we're providing that. Well, in those days, Newt, that wasn't true. And in my previous experiences, that wasn't true. So there was a lot of machinery that had to be put in place and people that needed to come to the battlefield. So we had a direct connection back to the 24-hour operational systems that we have back in places like Tampa, you know, where Central Command is or Special Operations Command headquarters are, or into Washington, D.C., or elsewhere into some other places. We work very closely, for example, with the New York City Police Department. And a lot of people don't know that because New York City's always been target number one for the country, and we always saw intelligence where there was always going to be targeting there. All these pieces, this very complex, I call it sort of the million piece puzzle. And I'm not sure we ever finished that puzzle, but we put a lot of it together in a very, very short period of time. And I would say in about a six month period of time, I was a young colonel at the time. Maybe that's when they started to go, oh, this fun's a real pain in the rear end. But I was putting demands on it because we were being directed by the National Command Authority, the President of the United States, to win. And we were being directed by the National Command Authority to go after certain individuals. And my God, there's so many stories about miracles that happened on the battlefield because of the connections of dots by young analysts, by young interrogators, by young professionals who came in to help us in the intelligence machinery that we developed and established. And it was everything from forensics of computers to integrating unmanned aerial vehicles and drones, and then networking the so what across multiple countries, not just Iraq, not just Afghanistan, but I would say probably 27 nations where we ended up. And I think through a very, very effective liaison network that was developed in from our organization out, we took the battlefield and we brought it to Washington, D.C., so to speak. And so we had liaison who were up 24 hours a day and our leadership would say, you know, we would do a request to do something because some of the stuff we needed the Secretary of Defense's approval. And we didn't want to wait because we had eyes on the target, so to speak, right? So we would want to move the bureaucracy. I would want to know whose inbox is it in right now? And so we essentially planted our own people inside the Pentagon 24 hours a day to move documents out of inboxes. As you know, Newt, the bureaucracy can kill us. It can kill a capability. It can kill time and it can kill opportunities that we need on the battlefield, which is moving at the speed of light. So bottom line, our ability to go from six raids, and these are very, very complex raids a month to approximately 30 a night. And in many cases, when we got to that level, we were actually turning so we could do a raid at 2200. And from that raid site, we would actually go in to get information. We wouldn't go in necessarily just to capture somebody. We would go in to get information because we knew that particular person was carrying a thumb drive or a laptop. And we would take that information, immediately turn it, and we would be conducting raids from the information that we discovered at four o'clock in the morning with a, another raiding force or the same raiding force. Because the operators that we have, they're the best in the world, absolutely best in the world. I just hope that America appreciates what we have in our capabilities because they're extraordinary. But those individuals, they were doing it because they believe in our country. They believed in the cause. They believed in trying to save lives of other conventional forces that were on the ground who were 
being targeted by IED, by improvised explosive devices, and by other attacks by some of these people against our conventional forces. So the integration of special operations and our conventional forces, that's pretty extraordinary. I would just say, Newt, that for me, it was a massive team effort because we created a bunch of true believers that were on the battlefield. And when you're on the battlefield and that's where you live and that's where you breathe and that's who you breathe with and that's who you know that there's sacrifices going on, you're attending memorial services of guys that went on a raid who were killed that night or you're going to a ramp ceremony in Basra or some other airfield where we're putting a casket on the back of an airplane. That is the starkness of reality that one can only imagine in combat. And the type of person that I can't live with myself unless I leave it all out on the field and do everything humanly possible. And if that means breaking down bureaucratic walls back in Washington, D.C., which we did, then that's what it takes. If I ever felt like somebody was going to fire me, that's fine. I know that what I was trying to achieve was the right thing, you know, morally, legally, ethically, and spiritually, so to speak, because one thing that my father taught me from his experiences, and I learned, is there's no atheist in a foxhole when you have a threat uh, that wants to kill you. I'm curious, what was the average age of your young analyst? We had sort of top tier analysts that were mentors for the junior analysts that showed up. And we would do that. We would do that purposely. So our top tier people would be late 30s. In some cases, they were early 40s. We would have to bring them in, particularly initially, to mentor and to teach because the best analysts are risk takers as well. They're not just bureaucrats who look at a piece of information and they're afraid to actually say, what does it mean? They just say, well, there's what the information is. We have people in our ranks that are like that. And I had to tap into them. But the average age, I'd say, was mid to late 20s. And these were not just military, but civilian analysts that we brought in from the Defense Intelligence Agency or from Army Intelligence, particularly Army Intelligence helped me out quite a bit because my relationships to people in Washington, D.C. that were in, you know, there were senior army officers that helped me out. But DIA came on eventually and they helped us out quite a bit. We also integrated analysts from the FBI and the CIA. And they were, I would say the average age is probably, I'm guessing a little bit, probably around 27. Amazing. Yeah, I think we, it really is. I think we sometimes forget how many dedicated young people are working at this I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You have 33 years, much of it in very dangerous situations. And towards the end of your military career, you end up back in Washington, which I would argue turns out to be a more dangerous battlefield uh, than the one you've been in in Iraq and Afghanistan. Talk a little bit about that transition back into the world of bureaucratic politics. So as an intelligence officer, to never have served in Washington, D.C. until I was a two-star, I'm an unusual cat, Newt, all right? Normally, the intelligence community that rises up to the level that I rose to, you know, you have to float in and out of Washington, D.C. and go kiss the ring of somebody somewhere. And I avoided that. I could have cared less. And that's why I, when I mentioned my many years at Fort Bragg, I will tell you, Iraq is safer, Afghanistan is safer than Washington, D.C. I did not go to Washington, D.C. or get assigned until I was a two-star. And so how did that happen? Well, I had been operating for years, at least three years. And then I was selected to be the J-2 or the senior intelligence officer at Central Command. And about Three months into that, and there was a lot of things going on at that time, historically and from a military perspective, and certainly from a geostrategic perspective. Well, my path then crossed with Mike Mullen, who you know. And I got a call one day into the office of my boss, who was a four-star, and he said, how do you know Mike Mullen? And I said, I don't know. I never met him. And I knew he was the chairman, and I was a one-star at the time. And he said, well, he just called me up and said, he wants you to come to Washington, D.C. And I said, you mean to like brief him? And he goes, no, he wants you to be assigned there. And I had been at Central Command in Tampa for about three months. At the time, that was Fox Fallon. He was a great leader and a great guy and another great person who I stayed in a good relationship with him further on. But he was another tough guy. So he ended up fighting Mike Mullen, I think. I did go up to visit Admiral Mullen at the time, and I had a great conversation with him. And because of everything going on in Central Command and at the time, Admiral Fallon was able to convince Admiral Mullen to keep me at Central Command for at least, he tried for a whole year. I don't think I was quite there a year, probably 10 or 11 months, if I remember right. And so then I was assigned as the senior intelligence officer for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and working directly for Admiral Mullen. He was forming a team at the time. So I was in CENTCOM from 2007 to 2008. 2008, I go to the Pentagon. And now I'm a promotable one-star. I was selected to two-star. And now I'm into the depths of what we now call the swamp of Washington, D.C. I wasn't out of my league then because I had been in and out of Washington, D.C. quite a bit. And I had a really, really strong network of people 
both in the intelligence community and in the political realm. And I had a great relationship with Admiral Mullen. I think he's a terrific guy and a great leader, and he was a great chief. And I worked for him for about a year. When you look at 2008 to 2009 and geostrategic dynamics around the world, and we went through an economic crisis and a presidential election, the Obama administration comes in and they changed their strategy over in Afghanistan. And I had already served in Afghanistan quite a bit in that theater and over in Iraq. I had spent quite a few years over there. So when they changed the strategy and they changed the horses as they do in politics and in the military at senior levels, I was called into Mike Mullen's office again. And he said, I'm going to send you over to Afghanistan. It was another one of these moments where like, you mean to like go do a temporary duty, go over there for a couple of days and do an assessment for you? He goes, no, you're going over there with Stan McChrystal. And I said, okay, no problem. And literally, I went back home, told my wife again, I'm deploying. She said, okay, that's, you know, such is life. And I went over there for another year and a half. I deployed literally a couple of days later. And I stayed in Afghanistan for another year and a half until almost the early winter of 2010 timeframe. So I was over there in Afghanistan in 2009 to the early winter of 2010, and then returned back to Washington, D.C. again, because as a senior at that level, in terms of rank, either you get out, you deploy, or you go back to Washington, D.C. into some job that they want you to serve in. And I wanted to continue to serve. I absolutely love our men and women in uniform, and I love serving. I think you'll better understand on Wednesday, when he talks about Russiagate, how really disgusting, immoral, and unpatriotic the FBI and the deep state was in targeting him. In the next episode, Mike Flynn fighting for his life against the entire deep state. Thank you to my guest, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. You can read more about his years of service in the military on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.